so excited to get into part two of our series called Searching for Answers. If you're new with us, what we've done over the past few weeks is we've received questions from our church family um, related to life, related to God's word, related to all kinds of situations. Um, and, and we've compiled those questions and we've tried to group them into categories uh, and, and place them in, man, these questions kind of go together, these questions kind of flow together. Um, and so today in part two, we're going to be answering eternal questions, questions of eternity. In fact, this is going to be highly closely related to last week. Uh, in fact, of the six questions we're going to have today, four of them were texted in last week. Three of them were texted in around one, exa- one specific topic, and so we want to make sure clearly this is something that people are asking about, this is something people want to know, so we want to give, speak to you from God's Word. So as a refresher for those of us who've been here, and, and just as a ground rule for those who haven't, we have three principles for this series. When, when God's Word speaks clearly, we're going to answer these clearly. Uh, this is what the Bible says. In fact, one of these questions I think it's, the Bible is extremely clear on, and we're going to speak clearly from God's word on that question. Um, sometimes God's word is not 100% clear. Uh, and when God's word is not 100% clear, we're going to strive to find biblical principles and, and apply those principles and say, hey, because the Bible says this, we believe it applies over here. And every once in a while, the Bible may not be very clear at all. Uh, and in those cases, I will share with you my opinion. In fact, one of our questions today, I will have to share some opinion. And I will tell you, it's my opinion. Now, I think it's an informed opinion. I think it's a, a good opinion, but it is just my opinion, so you can take it or leave it. Um, but without further ado, we're going to dive in, but let me say this real quickly. If you have a question today related to the questions we're going over today, or maybe another question you just haven't thought of to submit, something that's going on in your life, something a friend or family member has been asking you, man, feel free to text those in. The phone number is 662 662- 404 It should be in the bottom corner on your screen throughout the service, so you'll have access to that. Uh, but, but at the end of service today, our team's going to be selecting one question uh, that we'll go over that was texted in today, and we'll try and answer one quickly. Uh, and then, like I said last week, four of these were texted in last week that we're answering today. So just because we don't get to it in service today doesn't mean we will not answer it as we go forward. So all that being said... We're going to answer six questions today, but really three topics. Some of these questions we'll group together, and, and we'll group them together. So what I would call question 1A, texted in last week. In fact, all three of these in question 1 were texted in last week. It says, you say there are no innocent people. What about a baby who is stillborn? What about a one-year-old who died from AIDS? They cannot comprehend such things. Second question, 1B, do unborn children go to heaven? Does a two-year-old that passes away from cancer, do they go to heaven even though they couldn't make their choice if they want to be saved? Uh, And then question 1C, if there is no innocent person, what happens if a child dies before he or she accepts Jesus into his or her life? So a little bit of context around these questions. Last week, uh, we, we had this question come in about what about people who've never heard the gospel? What about people maybe in a third world country who've never heard about Jesus? What happens to them? And so in answering that question, we talked about how obviously God would never send an innocent person to hell. Uh, The problem is there are no innocent people. All of us are guilty. All of us are sinful. So let's establish that in Scripture first of all. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 is clear. And it says this. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Psalms and the book of Ecclesiastes in summing up this statement about the fact that none of us are good, that none of us are righteous, that none of us can stand before God and say, I deserve to be in your midst. I deserve to be rewarded for my life. All of us are equal in the fact that we have failed, that we have sinned, that we have fallen short of God's glory. So what does that mean for the unborn? What does that mean for the very young? These are very legitimate questions, and I I feel bad that I did not address this last week because obviously quite a few of you are wrestling with this. Now, I know, in fact, very recently I found out about quite a few of you. Many of you have lost children during pregnancy. Uh, Many have lost unborn babies, uh, stillborn, uh, and and, and other situations, man. Um, So I know that pain, in fact, is very fresh for us, but we know what that's like. Um, We know what that challenge looks like as we wrestle with that question. Um, 2 Samuel has a very helpful passage for us here that we will turn to for this biblical principle. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, the context here is uh, David and Bathsheba have just had a child. Bathsheba's baby was born, uh, and seven days after birth, the baby dies. Uh, David's been fasting for this baby, asking God to save this baby, to rescue this baby, and he doesn't. The baby passes away. And so in 2 Samuel 12, 23, it says this. David says, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So David makes this confession of faith that, that he is confident that he can go to where the child is, that the child did not cease to exist, that there is a place where the child is, and that David will go to him one day, that he will be reunited with his seven-day-old baby boy at some point in the future. And he seems to draw comfort from this. He seems to suggest, man, uh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right with this child. Um, this is a comforting verse for me. So it's a verse that, that, that I look forward to being true. Now, let me say this. Here's a danger for us in Scripture. 2 Samuel is, is what we would call a narrative book. It's a book that tells stories. And so as it's telling stories, it quotes people. And so when a Bible is giving a narrative, when the Bible is quoting something that somebody says, we can't trust always that just because somebody says it in the Bible means this is what God would say. Uh, there are evil people quoted in Scripture. We see Pharaoh quoted. We see Herod quoted. There are, man, just mistaken people quoted in Scripture. In fact, Satan himself is quoted in Scripture. So just because something is said in the Bible doesn't mean this is from God for us that we can just lift it out of the passage and stand on it and say, this is for me. We have to understand the context of the story. Uh, So in the context of this story, uh, a couple of things speak to me here. First of all is this. David is actually one of the authors of Scripture. 
He's actually one of the people that God's entrusted to record and pass unto us what God's word says. David wrote at least 75 of the Psalms. The book of Psalms has 150 Psalms. Uh, 73 are credited to David in the Old Testament. Two are credited to David in the New Testament for a total of 75. There's probably others that are unaccredited that were written by David as well. But at least half of the book of Psalms was written by David. So he has the, the standard, the level of biblical authorship. Now, we know that doesn't mean David was perfect. We can look at David's life and see some massive mistakes, right, where David blows it in, in, in really big ways. In fact, one of the things I love about David is that God chose to use him despite his massive failures. Um, and then God says this about David. He says, he's a man after my own heart, a man after my own heart. So what, what I think about David is while David was capable of great sin, David had great insight into who God was and how God works, his understanding of God, his theology is very strong. His behavior is not always strong. It doesn't always leak into his life. But his understanding of God is very strong. So I would say when David says something in Scripture, we can trust it with a high degree of confidence, although I don't think we can 100% stand on it in a narrative passage like this. So there's another verse that I think helps shed some light on this question, and it's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul Inspired by the Holy Spirit says this. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So Paul points to creation. And he says, because of creation, creation declares who God is. Creation itself confirms there's a creator. Because there is a creation, there, ergo, there must be a creator. And so it speaks to who God is. And so none of us has an excuse to reject God, to reject Jesus, because even if we haven't heard Jesus' name, man, just looking around confirms his existence. Um, and so because of this, this seems to leave open the door that those who are not old enough to understand, those who are not old enough to put together that which is clearly seen, it seems to leave the door open that they could be with excuse, right? But again, the Bible does not say this clearly. So there's this idea in Christendom that's been passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's called the idea of the age of accountability. The age of accountability. Uh, some Christians believe the age of accountability is 13. This is based on the, the Jewish idea that someone transitions from a child to an adult at 13 years old. So the idea that, that kids under 13, they're going to go be with Jesus in heaven. They're not accountable. But once you turn 13, you're on your own. You better, you better meet Jesus. Um, I don't necessarily ascribe to that age. Um, having met Jesus much earlier than that myself, uh, having seen God move mightily in many kids' lives long before they turn 13, I, I think it's very possible for someone to understand the gospel before they turn 13 years old. Um, the great Christian theologian and, and pastor Charles Spurgeon Put it this way, Spurgeon said, a child of five can as truly be saved and regenerated as an adult. And I've seen five-year-olds about whom that is absolutely true. Uh, so what do we do with all this? What does all of this mean? How do we piece it together? Well, I will piece it together and I will give you my opinion here. I've given you as much biblical principle on this as I can. I've shared with you as much as I, as I can to illustrate what I believe is the truth, and so synthesizing it, here's where I stand. This is my opinion, and it's a very strong opinion. It's an opinion I would fight for, but I can't 100% guarantee you I'm correct. And that's this. My opinion is when the unborn, very young children, and I would add those with 
very severe mental disabilities, when they pass away, I believe they are graciously received into the presence of Jesus. Uh, I believe those who do not have the capacity to give themselves to Christ, do not have the capacity to repent and turn to Jesus, either because they're too young when they pass uh, or or because they, they were not blessed with the mental faculties to wrestle with those things and recognize those things. I believe in a gracious God and a good God who I believe 100% receives those who we would consider innocent in, in those capacities. I think he takes them into heaven. I, I think David's testimony for us is illustrative. I think it's comforting. Um, I, I think it speaks pretty loudly. Lastly, I would say this, and again, we can't base theology on these things, but I think in, in conjunction with these scriptures, in conjunction with these principles in conjunction with the understanding of who God is, I think it's informative. Um, one of, the, there have been a series of children who have had situations where they've passed uh, and had a vision of heaven uh, and then were, were raised back to life and, and shared with us their stories. Now, I think some of them, in fact, some of them have been proven to be false. Like one of their dads actually just came out and said, yeah, we wanted to write a book and make money off of this. And unfortunately, Christians tend to be gullible and we buy stuff and we eat stuff up if it confirms what we want to believe. Um, so just because somebody says, hey, I had this vision doesn't mean it's true. Uh, but one of their stories I think is really interesting. One of the stories says when I got to heaven, uh, there were thousands upon thousands of kids there. That heaven was full of children. And with what we understand, if, if we are correct that those who are miscarried, those who are lost in pregnancy, those who are stillborn, those who are aborted, if we are correct that those go to heaven, and I believe very strongly that we are, that would make sense. It would make sense that heaven is full of kids. In fact, Jesus says, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. So I believe that heaven is full of kids. I don't know if this particular kid actually had a vision of heaven, uh, but I I do believe that heaven is full of kids. I do believe that the roughly one-fourth of pregnancies that end short of birth, that those children go to be with with Jesus, and that those who are very young, those who are mentally incapacitated, also go to be with Jesus. So that's where I stand on those questions. Excellent questions. Question two is this. A well-known Anglican Christian author believed in purgatory. The word says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is there any basis in the Bible for an otherwise mature believer to believe this? Uh, Let me explain. Some of us understand this idea of purgatory. Some of us probably have no clue what this is. Purgatory is the predominantly Catholic idea that there is an in-between place between hell and heaven. Uh, And it's a place that those of us who have received salvation, who have received grace in this life, uh, but have not yet received the earthly punishment for our sins in this life. It's the place where we go to pay the price for our sins. It's the place of torment uh, to pay the price for those sins before we are then taken into heaven. It's a holding tank. It's the place where, where you go before you get to go to be with Jesus, and you pay the price for your earthly sins. Now, we know there is consequences for sin here on earth. Uh, Sometimes we see somebody like on death row who's committed horrible murders and they legitimately give their life to Jesus. And I've seen Christians campaign for for them to be spared, for them to be pardoned because that's not who they were anymore. And my belief is they still have to pay a price for, for what they did on earth. That just coming to Jesus does not 
rescue me or spare me from the consequences of my earthly sin. It does spare me from the spiritual consequences of my sin, which is far greater. Uh, and, and so I think that's probably part of the foundation of this idea. The other part of the foundation for this idea is the Old Testament saints. In the Old Testament, before Jesus had come and paid the price for our sins, when somebody passed away, they went to a place called paradise. Jesus talks about it while he's hanging on the cross with, with the thief who repents. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise was this place, another place in scripture they call it Abraham's bosom. Uh, it, it was this place where those who followed God, those who were righteous before God, those who trusted in God and trusted that God would send a Savior, where they went in between when the Savior came. They couldn't go directly into God's presence because their sin had not yet been paid for. The Bible says that, that no sin can be in the presence of God, in his physical manifest presence. Uh, and so they had to go to this other place. Now, it was not a place of punishment. It was not a place of torment. It was paradise. Sounds pretty rough, right? Uh, that, that was where they went in between until Jesus came. Now, when Jesus died, he went to paradise. He rescued those saints, and he took them to the presence of God. So now we get to the New Testament, and this question actually refers to this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.8. It says, 2 Corinthians 5.8 in the NIV puts it this way. It says, we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The King James says, when we're absent with the body, we're present with the Lord. It's not the only place in Scripture where we get this concept that as soon as we leave the body, we're with God. In fact, Isaiah 57.2 says, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. Hebrews 9.27, New Testament says, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So the Bible does not speak of an in-between place called purgatory. In fact, no, Catholics aren't the only ones who believe this. They're uh, Orthodox churches believe in a place called purgatory, although they have a different name for it. Uh, there are actually some Anglicans, as referred to in this question, who believe in the concept like this. There are some Methodists who believe in a concept like this. There's this idea that we need to pray for those who have passed away. Um, and so none of those things are biblical. The Bible does not teach about a place called purgatory. The Bible teaches, I believe very clearly, that when we are dead in Christ, we immediately go to be with him. We immediately stand before him. There is no in-between place. There is no holding tank. Uh, we stand before God immediately. So since we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the price has been paid for our sins. If we die in Christ, we're with him. So the answer to the question number two would be no. There is no reason for a mature believer to believe in purgatory. This one I'm very, very clear on. Uh, question three, and this is a two-part question, two questions, one that came in on a connection card, one that came in via text. Uh, says this, says, if I confess and repent every day, God forgives and forgets. What will I be judged on when I stand before God? Having to explain something to God is a big fear of mine. Second question this, how is it that we are fully and freely forgiven of our sins in Christ and he forgets them, casts them as far as the east is from the west, yet we must give an account for our lives on judgment day? These are awesome questions and important questions. These cut to the, the very concept of grace, the very concept of salvation, the very basis of eternity. What is grace? What has God done for us? And what will we answer for? Uh, the Bible teaches about two different judgments. There is, in Revelation chapter 20, what's called the great white throne judgment. Uh, and in fact, we'll read it. I believe it starts in verse 11 through 15. 
The, John the Revelator says this in Revelation 20. God's given them this vision of eternity, this vision of the future. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a terrifying passage. It's a terrifying truth. This is something that is not easy to teach on. It's not something that I look forward to to teaching on. But it's important for us to teach what the Word of God says. I believe we need to believe what the Word of God says. And the Bible teaches that there will be a judgment that comes one day when people will stand before God, give an account for their lives, where they will be measured against their works, and then cast into the lake of fire. Here's the good news for most of us. Christians will not appear at the great white throne judgment. And here's why we know this, because it says they're going to be judged against their works, and their works will determine if they're received into heaven or not. You and I will not be judged according to our works. We'll be judged according to Jesus' works. It's what we call, uh, oh my gosh, I lost the theological term, but basically uh, where where Jesus' sacrifice has been attributed to us. Um, It's been given to us, that his life, his righteousness has been attributed to us, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. So we don't stand before God and answer for our works. Our works are not going to judge us. If we were judged by our works, guess what? None of us would make it in. None of us. We already saw there are no, none who are righteous. No, not one. So you and I will not stand at the great white throne judgment. This will just be those whose names were not written down in the Lamb's book of life. Um, that's the good news. Uh, but as Christians, we will face judgment. The Bible teaches this in a number of places. One of them is Romans chapter 14 that we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 says this. says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. The book of Romans, written to Christians. And Paul says, each of us, as believers, will one day give an account of ourselves to God. He teaches more on this same concept in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 11 says, for no one can lay any foundation other than one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul says one day, you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be laid before him. And some of those works will be gold. Some of them will be precious stones. Some of them will be silver. And as fire is applied to that, it's not going to burn up. It's going to remain. Some of our works will be stubble or hay or straw. 
And as fire is applied to that, it's going to burn up. No matter what, it says you're still going to be saved, right? So this is not a judgment on were you good enough to get into heaven. That our works are not determining if we're saved or not. But it's a judgment based on how are we going to be rewarded in heaven? What am I going to give you in heaven? Are you going to have more jewels in your crown? Are, are you going to have greater responsibilities? What, what is the reward in heaven going to look like for us? Uh, I think I got one more verse for you. Psalm 103 verse 12 referred to in the question. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So if that is true, and we believe that it is, and as we receive salvation, that God actually removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. In other words, he, he takes them and balls them up and throws them. And if you go east, you'll never come to west. And if you go west, you'll never come to east, right? They just go in the opposite direction. So I'm going this way, and my sin's going this way, and we're never going to meet again. So if that is true, how is it that one day I give an account before God for my actions? Another place in Scripture says that we'll give an account for every idle word. How is it that one day I'll stand before God if that stuff's already forgotten, if it's already forgiven? Now, here's, here's a great principle that we have to understand. When two verses seem to disagree, we don't get to choose the one that we like the best and reject the one that we don't like. And we don't get to choose the one that we don't like and reject the one that we do. It's not that one of them is true and one of them is not. It's that both of them are true. And it's just sometimes that our ability to comprehend is not quite where God needs it to be, right? He says his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our hot thoughts, they're higher than ours. And so sometimes we can't comprehend how two ideas fit together. So here's my theory. I, I know that we will stand before God and give an account, A, and I know that our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, B. I know both of those are true. So how do we reconcile them? Here's my theory. I think one day we will stand before God and give an account, and he's forgotten, but we haven't. He's going to ask, tell me about your life, Troy. And I'm going to know. I'm going to know the good. I'm going to know the bad. I'm going to know the great. I'm going to know the ugly. I'm going to know the stuff that I have to be proud of. And I'm going to know the stuff that I have to be ashamed of. And I'm going to tell him. And as I tell him, these, these, these things are going to begin to appear. And I don't know if it's physically gold and silver that's attributed to my account over here. And if it's physically wood and stubble and hay over here. Or if that's just a metaphor and illustration. I don't know how that's going to work. But I'm going to give an account of it all. Here's what I did, God, for you. Here, here's what I did. That, man, you, you were so great in this moment. And you empowered me. And you filled me with your presence. And you used me in this amazing way. And, God, here's what I did that I didn't want you to know about. But I knew you were watching. I knew you knew it, even though I did it. And somehow I did it anyway. I'm going to stand before him and give an account for it all. Now, the good news is, even if there's a whole lot more wood and hay and straw over there and not nearly as much gold and silver over here as I would like, the good news is I'm getting in one way or the other because it's not about my works. It's about his works. So the first question, I think, said, man, I'm terrified of the idea of having to answer before God for what I've done. I don't believe that we need to be terrified of the judgment before Christ. And here's why. The motivation for the judgment is to reward me. That's the whole reason. 
His motive in this is not, hey, I want to embarrass you. It's not, hey, I want to drag you through all the junk that you did. His motivation is, tell me about your life so I can give you as much reward as possible. I I want to bless you as much as I possibly can. I I want to do as much for you as I can. So, So this is his motive. Those of you who are parents, you know, man, sometimes we're just looking for a reason to bless our kid, right? Like we're just looking for anything our kid does right so we can celebrate it, so we can stand, especially like if our kid isn't in that great of a season, if they're in like a bad season, it's like, man, what are you doing right so I can, I can emphasize that, so I can speak to that? So Jesus says, what have you done right? I want to look for what you've done right. I want to reward you for what you've done right. So I don't think we need to be afraid of this day. I don't think we need to be in fear If you've received salvation, that's what matters. You're going to be with Jesus. But I would say this. I think God tells us this day is coming for us to be aware. So we'll be without excuse. We can't stand before him and say, God, I didn't know I was going to have to tell you about this one day. So we know. Um, And so I do believe there is a healthy fear of God, not a fear that I'm going to burn in hell, Not, not a fear that he's going to banish me or be angry with me, but a fear that, man, I don't want to disappoint you. I want you to be proud. I want as much gold and silver over here as I can get. Not because I want the biggest mansion in heaven or the greatest crown. I want people to see me, but I want daddy to see me and say, well done. I want her to be proud. I want her to look at me and say, man, you lived a life that was flawed, but man, it was good. You honored me. You glorified me. You did the best that you could. And so I believe we need to live with an awareness that the judgment will come. That this conversation will happen. If that makes us uneasy today, that probably means that's the voice of conviction of the Holy Spirit. Saying, man, there's some stuff. we let, let, Let's tweak this. Let's get this right before we get there. I can't go back in time and change the way I've lived up to this point. But I can change the way that I live from here forward. And because of your Holy Spirit in me, God, you've equipped me with the ability to live for you. With the ability to accumulate some gold and some silver. Man, our first impressions team today came in thinking they were going to have to be out there in the rain. And actually, the rain subsided mostly. But man, they were ready. They had the umbrellas. They were ready to go to get out there. You guys were going to build some gold and some silver today. You were going to do, you know, and, and you still did as you served. Our people in Kid City today, they're, 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 they're sowing some gold and sowing some silver. God's going to look down and say, man, you served a child. This is the kingdom of heaven, and you were serving them on earth. You were bringing my kingdom to earth. You were serving. You were doing something awesome. I'm not saying it's just when we serve in church or just when we give in church or just when we contribute to church. It's so much bigger than church, but that's a part of it. And, man, God's going to look at the way that I live. And so don't be living trembling in fear of that day. Here's what I want for me and for us. Let's live our lives in such a way that we look forward to that day. Man, let's glorify Jesus on a daily basis. Let's deal with sin. Let's get rid of it. Let's serve wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. Let's live every day as if God was watching because he is so that we can look forward to that day. I can't wait to tell daddy what I did. I remember sometimes I get a report card. I couldn't wait to get home, man, with that report card because I knew, man, I I was going to be blessed because of it. Mom and dad were going to be proud of that report card. Now, I got some report cards I didn't want mom and dad to see. Especially once I got to college. Uh, we won't talk about that season of life. Uh, but, but I had some really proud report cards when I was younger. And man, I looked forward to mom and dad seeing that. How cool would it be if all of us got to look forward to standing before Jesus? I think we can. 
I don't think any of us have to fear it because he's not going to punish you. He's not going to condemn you. He's not going to send you to purgatory and say, you can't be with me until you pay the price for all this stuff. That's not who he is. Here's the thing. Jesus already paid the price for it. Jesus already paid the price for all my wood and all my hay and all my stubble and every idle word and every time I'd make a promise to him that I wouldn't follow through on and every time I knew the right thing but I did the wrong thing, Jesus already paid the price for that. Praise God. So I don't have to stand in fear. But I do think I should be aware. One day I'm going to give an account. And I believe it's because I'm going to know. And I'm going to tell him about it. And then he's going to reward me for the part that was rewardable. And that's going to be pretty awesome. 